Today's scripture reading is found in 2 Samuel, chapter 11, verses 1 through 17, and 26 and 27. So take a moment to turn to the text in your Bible, and the reading is behind me. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Robar. But David remained in Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house. And he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing, and how the people were doing, and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Verses 26 and 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Vizzy. Well, right now you may be seated. I believe that all of God's word is inspired. All of it's inspired. God's word itself says that, that it's faithful to do what it sets out to do. In each and every time it's read, it's preached, it's proclaimed, and this is no different. And so if you're new, let me explain how, how we do things here at the Parks Church. We preach through books of the Bible, and we've been making our way through First uh, and Second Samuel for a lot of weeks now. And uh, we've been journeying with, uh, you know, e even beginning with, with Samuel and, and, uh, and, and, and Saul and, and David. And uh, this chapter is um, one of the most, it is maybe one of the most famous chapters in, in all of our Bible. It's for sure one of the top two chapters in First and Second Samuel, just in terms of people's familiarity with it. Uh, the other, interestingly, is probably what? David and Goliath. So on one hand, you have David and Goliath. This picture of victory and God's victory. This little shepherd boy standing, you know, before this great giant. And then the other most famous chapter is this. David and Bathsheba. 
victory in failure. Success in sin. And so I want to handle this text with great sensitivity, but also with great clarity. You see, the last several weeks and maybe even months, for the most part in our journey with David, we've seen him as this incredibly faithful man to God. Faithful to God, faithful to the nation that he leads, Israel. But today, we have a different story. A different kind of chapter than we've seen in weeks past as it relates to David. Even coming on the heels of last week, right? Talking about what? Hesed. Remember that Hebrew word hesed? This, this, this word that encompasses God's kindness and his loyal love and, and his, his mercy. And David demonstrating that hesed to Mephibosheth. Demonstrating that love to even the neighboring countries, even though that was rejected. And we come to this chapter on the heels of those kinds of things. And for how many of you, it, this chapter shatters maybe our image of David as this perfect king. And by the way, I think that's part of God's design in this. Maybe it shatters your image, even of how we've tried to walk with him over the last several months. And in fact, I, I, I've tried to warn us not to think like this. Not to think in terms of David's perfection, Right? but to think of him as it relates to the perfection of God and his faithfulness and orientation to that perfect God. But I've got to be honest, I've even found myself falling into that thinking of David's perfection from time to time. Even as I study this, I felt it in a, in a new way just hit me as I've spent months now journeying through First and Second Samuel. And so before I get to unpacking 2 Samuel chapter 11, I want to do a little gospel leveling. Gospel leveling of the field, if you will. Romans 3 tells us that all have sinned, right? Romans 3.23. As a child, if you grew up in church, you, you memorize this one. As an adult, you, you know it. It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Everyone, the Apostle Paul tells us, has sinned. All of us fall short of the glorious perfection that God demands. All of us, there's not one of us. And some of you sit in this room and you go, oh no, I know I've fallen short. I'm well acquainted with my sin. Some of you, you sit in this room and you feel alone in your sin. And the enemy, nobody else may be around you. The enemy has got you captured with shame and guilt feeling that you're on an island, telling you if anyone knew, can you imagine what they'd think of you? Can you imagine how they would respond to you? Others of you aren't on that island. You hear a story like this read by Vivian, and what comes to mind is how good you are, how well you've done, or you're going to hear me unpack this and you're going to say, Kyle, I would never stoop to that kind of level. I would never do that. And here I want to quote the late Tim Keller. Where he says, the seeds of the worst possible deeds. I don't know if he meant to rhyme that, but knowing him probably. Seeds of the worst possible deeds are in the heart of the best people. The seeds of the worst possible deeds are in the heart of the best people. For you or for me to ever say, I would never, is something that should never roll off of our lips. Now some of you may say this, and I think this is appropriate. Only by the grace of God, I haven't. Dot, dot, dot. That's an accurate statement. You see, I'm praying that this text might serve as a warning to us all. A call to repentance for others. And a devastating reminder of the effects of sin 
and our own human nature. And I have said this time and time again as we've walked through First and Second Samuel, that David is not an example telling us how to live. And now David gives us some good examples. But David is not an example telling us how to live because what happens when we come to a chapter like this? Rather, David is actually a picture of how we truly live. When we look at David, what we see is a mirror. Is that's the human heart. That's human nature. That's a snapshot of my own inadequacy. 2 Samuel chapter 11 is a reminder to us all of the inadequacy of David, that he is not the capital K king you're looking for. Oh, yes, he's a man after God's own heart. Yes, he's the man who God anointed to be king of Israel, but he is not the Messiah. He's not the Christ. He's not the anticipated one, right? But we still have to look at this text and hold it up and ask the Spirit to lead and love us well through a text like this. And the question when I come to a text like this, and we've asked it before, particularly in 1 Samuel, is this question, how did we get here? How did we get here after all the, the journeys we've made together with David in the wilderness and, and in the cave and, and, and before Goliath, which I'm going to talk about some of these contrasts. How did we get here? Well, I believe there have been breadcrumbs. The author has foreshadowed some of this in other texts, in other chapters, pointing to, hey, Take note of this. Pay attention here because this will come back up again. That these compromises, these seemingly small deviations from the heart of God haven't went unnoticed and will come to roost. You see, David, um, Deuteronomy lays out um, what it means to be a faithful king. And uh, David has followed many of those things and how he handles other nations and how he handles, like we talked about last week, chariots and horses and, and, and the plunder that he receives. However, every time in 2 Samuel it has talked about that, the faithfulness of David and David's kingdom growing, there have been these add-ons. And some of you, like last week when you said, hey, I noticed you skipped this back in chapter 5. I didn't skip it. You're just impatient. Okay, let me remind you. About David acquiring many wives and his concubines, breadcrumbs of going, this is not in line with what God has set forth in Deuteronomy. Notice that these things will come to fruition. They will give fruit in the end to something. This, that David acquiring more wives was about political gain and political power and taking things into his own hands. It was not in step with the heart of God. And here we see what comes out of that. What comes out of David making those small compromises. And so that's why I say this has been foreshadowed in many ways. There have been breadcrumbs. And so let's look at verse 1 as we unpack this. In any time we come to a familiar passage, um, I feel like we're, we're overcoming, we have to overcome some things, don't we? Similarly with David and Goliath. Probably all of you have either had a Sunday school lesson taught or you've heard some teaching or some opinion about David and Bathsheba, 2 Samuel 11, right? It, it, it was even interesting. I was on a trip this, this week and people would ask me, hey, what are you preaching this weekend? And I, I'd tell them and I would get essentially the three points of the sermon that they heard last on this or a teaching or opinion that they had on it. And, and so not that all of those points are bad or, or even unbiblical. I'm just saying that's one of the hurdles we have to overcome. And, and, and so maybe approaching this, not in a completely different way, but from a different angle than maybe that you, you've heard in the past. And, and one of them, I would guess, is rooted in, in really the first couple verses. And it says this, it gives the time of year, springtime. When the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But, but David remained at Jerusalem. The last phrase there, but David remained in Jerusalem. 
The author is trying to get us to understand that something about David staying in Jerusalem is off. Now, here's what most of you have heard, and I have heard this as well, read it this week. It's the fact that, and and maybe, again, to some point it might be correct, it's just not the fullest point. It's like David should have been out to battle with his men. How many of you heard that point in the main? Like David was in Jerusalem, he should have been on the front lines with his men in battle. Maybe. Maybe. Or there's something deeper taking place with David in Jerusalem. Or, maybe said a better way, there's something deeper not taking place in David in Jerusalem. So the word remained, interestingly, is the Hebrew word for abide. David abided in Jerusalem. Jerusalem, we know, is the place where David brought together the people of God, made it the the epicenter of God's people, not just the political epicenter or geographical, but also the what? The spiritual epicenter of God's people. And so he brought to Jerusalem the ark of God, and he placed it there. However, it appears in this text that in his men going out to battle with Joab, that that the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, the pre- that, that literally housed the presence of God, went with them to battle, okay? So it, it went from Jerusalem to wherever they were battling. And so here's the point I want to make about David abiding in Jerusalem. David is definitely remaining in Jerusalem. Is that wrong? Should he have been on the battle? I don't know. I don't think that's all of a big point. What is more concerning in this text is not where David is physically abiding. It's where David is spiritually abiding. He is obviously disengaged from the heart of God, from the presence of God, and his idleness... And maybe even his physical location is just an evidence of David's disengagement with the presence of God. So not only has the presence of God literally left Jerusalem, it's also left David, if you will, because he has become disengaged with it. And so chapter 11 begins to paint this picture of David being on this roof and and lying on his couch, not to paint a physical idleness, but to point deeper to a spiritual idleness and a spiritual disengagement within David's heart and within his life. One commentator puts it like this, idleness isn't just the absence of activity, for all of us need regular rest. Idleness is also activity to no purpose. That's where David begins to slide down this slippery slope, is that his idleness or where he's at in Jerusalem, ruling and reigning, is disconnected or disengaged from the heart of God. Now, this is very difficult to grasp because this is opposite of what we've seen in David the whole time. Take that other famous scene with Goliath. Do you remember where David was, right? He was at home and he was shepherding in the field, right? Not not idle, right? but maybe not purpose as we'd think it, but he was fulfilling his purpose, engaged fully. And then they come to him, his father comes to him and says, hey, I want you to take some some of these things to the battlefield. You know the story. And what's David? He's taking supplies to the battlefield, right? Not idle. He takes them there and he realizes something very deep and profound when he shows up there that nobody there in Israel or these valiant soldiers will stand up to Goliath. You remember that conversation? He's going, why won't anybody stand up to this giant? And they're all like, well, Because he's a giant, right? Because he's slayed a bunch of people. Because look at him. And David's going, oh, wait, wait, wait. You're seeing with your earthly eyes. He's going, wait a minute. If our God is truly who we believe he is, then the victory's in his hands. Then me standing before him, right, is nothing more than just God showing up to demonstrate his power and his authority. So let's let's go. This is like the direct opposite of what we're seeing in chapter 11, is it not? David going, listen, let's not be passive. Let's be fully engaged because our God is faithful. Let's not see with your earthly eyes. Let's not see with our physical eyes. But in this text, the picture painted here by the author is that David is sitting at home, disengaged in the action around him, disengaged that begins the downward spiral of sin in David's life. Let me tell you that sin is often fed 
by a disengagement or even begins from a disengagement from what God is doing around us. Think about the the pinnacle of of sin chapters, right? Genesis chapter 3, where sin entered the world. Adam and Eve, if you go back and you read that chapter, Adam and Eve disengaged from what God was doing and even his physical proximity where he was. Prior to that, what were they doing with the Lord? Talking and walking in the garden together. It's when they are disengaged that they begin to look with their eyes and go, that looks good to us. That looks beautiful. I think we'll take it. Did God really say? When you begin to ask that question and you're disengaged, let me tell you where the source of that answer typically comes. Did God really say? When you're disengaged from the heart of God and the presence of God, that answer, did God really say, typically comes from you when you're disengaged. When you're engaged, when you're abiding in the right place, John 15, which we'll talk about here in a second, that answer, did God really say, comes from God. Oh yeah, God did actually say. You see, picture this. David, and the author is painting a picture here, right? Because we learn best with what? Story of David outside on his roof, disengaged from God, seated in earthly power, looking over Jerusalem, asserting power not just over his kingdom, but what will soon be over another person. What his eyes fall. You see, again, David wasn't necessarily wrong for being in Jerusalem or wrong from being away from the physical battle, but he was definitely wrong in the spiritual place of idleness he found himself in, abiding, not in the presence of God, not before the Lord, but abiding in a place where temptation, his flesh, and his ego could wreak havoc. The question this morning Where do you abide? Where is your life remaining? Where is it hidden? The chapter we love around here is John 15, and rightfully so, where Jesus talks about that very word, where he says, abide in me and I in you. You're the branches, right? I'm the what? Jesus says, I'm the vine. Let me tell you, there are a lot of vines, culturally speaking, sinfully speaking, we can connect our lives to, and let me tell you, the branch will always flow from the source of the vine. And when you in your life are abiding in something other than Christ Jesus, it will produce, let me tell you, James tells us, and I'm going to talk about James 1, James 1, it will produce nothing except the fruit of death and chaos every time. David in 2 Samuel 11 is a picture of that. And particularly, let me hone in on sexual sin. Particularly with sexual sin, where we find this disengagement from the heart of God, this abiding in the wrong place, are in two particular times. And not, this is not always true, but it's true by and large, most often. At times when life is uniquely and profoundly stressful. You, men and women, you look for sources and you look for outlets to relieve that stress. You look for places that you can self-medicate, if you will. Pacify this stress. Finding relief. Can't tell you the number of couples I have sat with where sexual sin has entered their marriage, the number of individuals where sexual sin has entered their life, and the first thing that rolls out of their mouth was, the season I was in was one of so much stress and intensity that I just needed to find something to satiate my pain. 
James 1, 14 and 15. You have that? But each person is tempted when he or she is lured and enticed by his own desire. I desire an outlet. I, I need a fix now. Then desire, when it conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth to death. That could be an outline for 2 Samuel chapter 11. He said, Kyle, there are two times. The stressed, and also on the other side of that. Where there's no stress. In fact, there's the opposite. And maybe for David, that's where he found himself in this place where he's out of the wilderness, where he's not being pressed. And notice I didn't say suffering when I was talking about stress. Hear my words clearly. But on the other side of that, where you're uniquely vulnerable in this particular area, is that area when it's all good. Maybe things are really good. Wealth is in place. Have the great job. Have all the earthly things you think you could ever want and fathom. That is also a unique and crafty place for the enemy to step in. Believing that you have worked, you have gotten, you're sufficient. Be on guard in those two places. I love one commentator in writing about this. It's, of course, speculation. But he said, line up a thousand Bathshebas when David was in the wilderness. And I bet he rejects it every time. But you put him at the top of his palace on one sunny day, and he folds. Think about that. It shows how important, church, this abiding thing really is. That our hearts and our minds and our lives are engaged with the living God. And listen, I think this is one of the devastating re spiritual realities of COVID. That there was this, and I, I don't mean the actual sickness of COVID, okay? I mean the ramifications of COVID on the spiritual community, on the faith community is that there was this acceptable allowance for disengagement. And I don't just mean from the local church or the gathering, although that is an indicator. Those things are indicators of your engagement or lack of engagement, the connectedness to your heart and your mind with the Lord. Going, well, I, we're not doing this because of this reason. Oh, well, hey, that's, that's fine. Listen, if we want to press something into you, it would be John 15. Abide in me. Abide in me. Abide in me. When did David hit the slippery slope? It's when his heart and his life began to disengage from the heart of God. We've made it one verse. Um, <laughs> but that one verse, let me tell you, sets up the other verses. The verses two and five, you see this this, this trap and this lure of temptation, what I call the, the anatomy of sin, whether it's 2 Samuel 11 sin or our personal individual sin. You see it in verse 2. It says that David, look at this, it happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw, here we go, looking through earthly eyes, he saw from a roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. The fruit was good. He saw the tree. It was good. It was beautiful. Same root word. And so David saw, and David sent and inquired about the woman. So he saw it, and he chose to act on it. He began to inquire about her. Is his inquiring honest? Like, does he really not know who that is? Probably not, actually. And that's revealed in the next line. So he sent and inquired of the woman. And then one of them said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah, the Hittite? Now, you got to know those names. Both of those names, her father and Uriah, the Hittite, were known by David because they were part of David's mighty men. So I think David clearly knew who this was. This is what make it, makes it even worse, right? 
What makes David's blindness in this situation even worse? And then verse 4, it says, so David sent messengers and took her. It says, I see that. Hey, go inquire who this is and then bring her to me. It's disgusting. But this is reminiscent of 1 Samuel chapter 8. We're in warning Israel about asking for a king. He said, Samuel going, you want a king? And you're asking for a king like the other nations? In 1 Samuel 8, it says, here's what that kind of king is going to do. Eight or nine times it says he will take, 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 take. And so you see how the author is bringing this nearly full circle to go, what is David doing? He's taking what his eyes see, what his desire, what his lust is driving to, taking that for himself. Now, is that a king after God's own heart? No, that's a king like the nations. David's feelings are driving the ship of his life. And in a culture that we live in, where we, in fact, not are just driven by feelings, but, but pushed toward feelings, and feelings and your desires are celebrated as the ultimate pinnacle of truth. And sensuality is lifted up, worshipped more than anything else. We need to be uniquely guarded, uniquely sheltered, if you will, and abiding in the right places and spaces. You see, David's disengagement from the Lord not only caused him to just have, have disregard for what the heart of God was, but it also caused him to have disregard for who Bathsheba was. That she was not only just a person, another image bearer that he just treated as property to himself, but also that she knew his father and his father, her father had served him. And not only her father, but her husband. Do you see how sin blinds? How sin blinds us to the true reality of that which is around us that David knew fully well? But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then that desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. What flows after this act with Bathsheba? Death. And what struck me this week in this text is that the bulk of the author's time is spent in verses 6 through 25 the sin or the act of, of the adultery happened really in one, maybe two verses in the whole text. But the bulk of the text is spent describing David's response to it. By David trying to, if you will, kill the evidence of sin without killing the root of sin. And this is how you know. You say, how do you keep knowing that David is disengaged from the Lord? This is how you know. Because the author wants to make it abundantly clear that David has lost his vision and heart of who God is. And what David is now protecting is who? Himself. What is David most concerned with? People's perception of him, his power, his, his position. Does that sound familiar if you've been with us? That sounds a lot like who? Saul. In Uriah, Bathsheba's husband is the one who looks most like David in this whole chapter. Full of honor and integrity. Abiding, it's, it talks about where Uriah sleeps. He sleeps here, or he doesn't sleep here. Same idea, remaining. Where is Uriah remaining? In the right places, in the right spaces. Engaged where he should be, not deceived by the enticements of the king. In verses 6 through 25, just lay out this, this meticulous plan by David to cover up the fruit of his sin, a royal gift, bringing Uriah back, flattering him, going, hey, tell me, how are the troops doing? This is why, one, I, I, and I maybe should have just done this. One commentator was just like, read the text and just let it sit. It's sick. And it should cause us in ourselves, in our stomachs, to be sick. He throws him a party, gets him drunk. None of that works to cover up 
the sin. So what happens? David literally executes James chapter 1, verse 15. He kills what he believes is the source. You see, in this story, Bathsheba is pregnant. I don't know if you heard in the reading, in the scripture reading, that there was this small note that said she was bathing from her uncleanliness. And what that tells us is that there was no mistake that this child was David's. There was no hiding. There was no, you know, smoothing this over going, it's Uriah's. And to perpetuate this further, as David has Uriah placed on the front lines, he tells Joab what to do. Pull back your soldiers so that Uriah would die. Joab follows exactly what the king has said. In verse 25, the messengers come back to David and they say this. And David said to the messenger after they've told him that Uriah and others have died. Your plan to kill Uriah accomplished, but it also killed other people. Here's David's words. Do not let this matter displease you. For the sword devours now one and now another. What? David essentially goes, that's what happens in war. Don't let the fact of Uriah being dead displease you. Cover up complete, buttoned up, glossed over, swept under the proverbial rug. But this is David's view. Thinking of the external ramifications only. And let me tell you, there will be external ramifications for his sin that you and I will see play out in a couple weeks. But David here, because of his disengagement from the Lord, thinking in physical terms only. And that's one of the reasons David got into this situation himself. But it's so much deeper than that. These words from verse 25 rolling out of David's mouth are an indicator of something deeply broken within David. Problem, I messed up, I fell. Solution, let me come up with it in my own, let me solve it, let me resolve it, let me, let me, let me take care of Uriah, then that's it. We're good, right? You see, we have to be honest in this space as we come to a close in this text that it's not David's view or your view that is the most important. It is God's view. And the final verse in this text tells us God's view of this whole situation. Verse 27, the last part. But. Remember where else we saw that word but? But. Verse one, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In other words, let me, let me translate that a little better. It was evil in God's sight. What David had done, and you were all like, yeah, no joke. Like, you don't have to be God to identify that one. But let's not take the wrong seat here. Let's not put ourselves in the seat of judge. Rather, let's put ourselves in the seat that Romans 3 places us. That we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. What is your response in your life? What is my response in my life when our sin is exposed? What happens when what is private becomes known? When the sin of our interior life is made public? You see, David had this external persona that he wanted to keep up, yet the interior engagement of his life with the Lord was distant, was absent, dare I say. How desperate are you to cover it up when that happens? To lie your way out of it, to justify your way out of it. 
to pacify yourself in other areas and other arenas, your way out of it. Listen, in 2 Samuel, there have been 2,000 words, over 2,000 words since the last time we were told that David has personally inquired of the Lord five chapters ago. I don't think the author's been unintentional in building that. What have I told you week after week? When is David at his best? When he's doing what? He's abiding. He's inquiring of the Lord. He's personally before the Lord. You see, David's greatest sin, and I say this with, 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 with gentleness, David's greatest sin in this passage was not necessarily the sexual sin with Bathsheba. David's greatest sin that's illuminated in this passage was his diminishing, deteriorating interior life and abiding with God, matched with an external persona of godliness. That's David's greatest sin. And that is what gave way to this incredible fall in 2 Samuel chapter 11. See, what that reminds me of is Jesus with the Pharisees and how he talked to them. He says, you guys honor me with your lips. You guys show up to church. You guys write the checks. You guys maybe even share your faith. But what does he say about them? He says, your whitewashed tombs, your internal life, the source of abiding in Christ is non-existent. That would be the greatest tragedy. And listen to me. There's not resolve in chapter 11. Chapter 11 ends by giving us God's perspective. This was evil in the Lord's sight. And I want us to sit in that weight. I want us to feel the weight of that warning. I want us to feel the weight of sin. Some of you who, who are walking in private sin, some of you who are walking in shame, the Lord is going, bring it into the light. Say, I can't. I can't. Here's what people are going to think. Here's what, that's exactly the mental gymnastics and the heart gymnastics David was doing. And let me tell you what that gets you to do. That gets you to justify and take one step after another. Sin conceived gives birth and gives way to death. Where that ends is not in you feeling better. It ends in death. More guilt, more shame. But I'm not going to leave it unresolved because the gospel is true. The gospel is powerful to free men and women from their sin. And so hear me when I say this. That you may go, Kyle, that is me when you talk about being disengaged from the heart of God, not abiding in those things, abiding in other things. Though you might be disengaged, our God is not disengaged ever. What chapter, what verse 27 tells to me is that David is running. David is going in his own direction. He's doing his own thing. But God is right there, lockstep, going, listen, my eyes are on you. My eyes, nothing has escaped me. Nothing has escaped him. And so this morning, the eyes of the Lord, the presence of God is here. He is fully engaged, even though you might be asleep and fully disengaged. He is engaged, ready, ready to receive your heart with his grace and with his love and with his mercy. You see, this is the problem if we look at David going, we need a perfect king, perfect king, perfect king. God goes, there's not one. You will not find that here on earth. There is only one who ever lived, and his name is Jesus. So come to him, and he freely gives you his grace and his mercy wherever you find yourself. But for some of you, you're stuck in the cycle and habit and pattern of sin. And you're like, I don't know what to do, Kyle. Let me tell you, you're in the right place. In a community of people, not one of us, who have it all figured out, right? If you think you have it all figured out, you're next up to fall, right? This is a safe place for you to wrestle through the things that God is pruning and shaping out in you. This is a safe place for you to abide, to connect into the vine so that the life and love of Christ might flow in and through you. But it's going to require a decision from you, a step of faith to trust in Christ Jesus. I didn't say this was a perfect community. What I tried to describe to you was an honest community. People honest with where they are, honest with who God is, Honest with his wrecking love and his grace and his mercy that will find us right where we are and love us enough to bring us out of that. 
in your own reading this week. Read 2 Samuel 11 again and underline the number of times the word sent or send is in there. And then here's what I want you to do as you underline that. You'll see, you'll notice a trend. Go over to chapter 12, verse 1, which I'll get to in a couple weeks. And it says, and the Lord sent. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. God's grace. David sent all these people, sent them out, sent them away, sent them there. Send, 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 send Joab, send your eyes, send. And the Lord meets David by sending his word to him through Nathan. The Lord is meeting you here by sending, sending his son. The most, the most famous verse, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he sent, he gave us his son so that whoever trusts in him would not perish but have life. Have life. So we're going to take communion this morning. Um, in communion, listen to me, and if you, if you need the elements, our hosts are in the back, you can just slip up your hand, they'll, they'll help you receive these as well. Communion is a place that we come every week where we're confronted with the reality and cost of our sin. The weight of it. What it really requires from us. Right? Jesus didn't say, hey, when you're ready to come to me, clean it up and then come to me. He says, no, you're only going to be able to come to me if you receive me my broken body and my shed blood. That's the way you know me. That's how the branch is grafted into the vine. And that branch that is grafted into the vine of Christ produces not death, but what, church? Life. And so we come to this table overwhelmed by the cost the reality of what our sin required. But I pray we come to this table also understanding and more overwhelmed by the grace of Jesus Christ that forgives all our sin. The first song we sang, my sins, they are many, but your mercy is, say it out loud, more, it's more. And when you trust in Jesus, you'll experience that. When you trust in Jesus, listen, here is, here's what we'll see in David. David is at his best when he's inquiring of the Lord. It's not because he's perfect. David's not at his best when he's perfect. It's because when he's inquiring of the Lord, when David does fall, let me tell you what he does immediately. He comes back to Jesus. He comes back to God. He falls on his face before Yahweh. When David is disengaged, he keeps running away. And some of you are keep, you keep running away from the source of life. May this morning be you going, no more running, no more hiding. Satan, you want to lump shame and guilt? No more of your voice. I'm trusting in the voice of Christ, the word of Christ that says, in him, I am a new creation, set free for freedom's sake. And this meal invites you and me into that again, the freedom of Christ. So I would ask you to stand with me. And I ask you to stand to change your posture to now engage the Lord. We're not gonna take these elements quite yet. We're getting ready to. But I want you to seek the Lord right now. Ask him, Lord, where are those places and spaces in my life? Some of you already know where my heart is disconnected from your heart where my life is disengaged from you. Father, forgive me 
in Christ. Listen, we're gonna get to chapter 12 and the call to repentance. But this space and this place demands that happen now. Before we take these elements that we would confess and turn. That we'd feel the weight of our sin and be overwhelmed by his grace. Let's take time now, not just rush into communion. On the night Jesus was betrayed after giving thanks, he took bread and broke it. And he looked at his disciples and he said, every time you take this bread, remember my broken body for you. Broken for the broken so that you may be made whole. Let's take the bread together. In the same manner, Jesus took the cup. He said, this is the new covenant. The old is fulfilled, Jesus says, in me. The law fulfilled. The king you're looking for, the one that David was merely a shadow of, the imperfect being a shadow for the perfect, Jesus says, I am the perfect king. I'm the one your heart longs for. I'm the one who achieves what you cannot achieve what David could not achieve in a thousand lifetimes. So we take the cup remembering our King and our salvation. In church, the only fitting response after communion is what? Worship. Let's worship our God in prayer right now. Father, accomplish and do what only you can. Holy Spirit, take these words and your word and by faith, help us to live them out for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen and amen.